0: I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. All right, today we're talking about punishment. We are going to talk about punishment procedures because I think it's important for positive reinforcement based trainers to understand punishment and know how to use it appropriately rather than just kind of (laughs) spew vitriol at those who choose punishment maybe more readily than we do. So to get started as usual, we need some definitions. There are, you know, within the four, op- the four quadrants of operant conditioning, two kinds of punishment. So we classify them as positive or negative punishment. And when I say positive or negative, I do not mean happy, not happy, yay, yucky. I, that's not what I mean. Think positive as a math term, so think addition sign. And then think negative again as a math term. Think minus sign. So positive punishment is simply simply that you added something to the environment that caused behavior to decrease. Because that's the definition of punishment is just any any effect is is the effect on behavior that behavior decreases. Punishment and reinforcement are defined by their functions. So. They're not defined by events or experiences. They're defined on their effects on behavior. So if behavior is decreasing, punishment is at play. And if behavior is increasing, reinforcement is at play. So negative punishment is that I took something away from the environment and behavior decreased. And positive punishment is I added something to the environment and behavior decreased. So how do we utilize punishment within kind of a LEMA, so a least intrusive, minimally aversive framework? And do we need to, right? So do we ever need it? And if we do, how do we apply it while still sticking to our values and our ethics? First things first, as is true in any type of behavior modification, the dog's needs Their basic needs must be met in order for this to be an acceptable thing to do. Hot tip or maybe hot opinion, I don't know. Um, That's true of any behavior change, whether you're using positive reinforcement or punishment. So it doesn't actually matter what kind of behavior change you're embarking on. It is still true that if you have not met the needs of the animal, you have no business invading upon the way that they behave in their environment because behavior change is inherently invasive. So their needs have got to have been met and then the next thing that's required is that there is a positive reinforcement tra- based training plan in the works. Which, and what that means is you're actively positively reinforcing the appropriate behaviors that you would like to see or perhaps the, re- the replacement behaviors that you would like to see from this dog. That is so often those two things all you need but when it's not is when the behavior you're trying to get rid of or replace has a long established reinforcement history. So if that that behavior has a long established reinforcement history, then that is when I find we may need to involve punishment procedures to inform our learner that that previous choice that has been reinforced for a long time is no longer available for reinforcement, but I'm gonna get into that in a minute here. The other thing that's really required is management, or the fancy term for that is antecedent arrangement. So if I manage my environment to avoid the problem behavior, that's also a really important thing for me to do. So I'm positively reinforcing what I do want to see. I'm meeting this animal's needs and I'm managing or manipulating the environment as best as I can to avoid problematic behaviors. That's those three things. That's our primary job as dog trainers. When we think of our primary job as dog trainers, as being punishing or eradicating problem behaviors, that is when I think we get into trouble and we cross into some waters that I'm not comfortable with. And that I know a lot of my colleagues. are. So if I cut off access to reinforcement for my problem behavior, I have not talked about that yet as an option. So we've got negative punishment. That's I remove something that's already present in the environment. I've got positive punishment. That's I add something to the environment. What if I just make it so that reinforcement will not come to the dog when they're doing the thing that's been previously reinforced? That is called extinction. Okay, so that's me attempting to extinguish that behavior by simply allowing it to run its course and have the dog decide that that behavior isn't working for them anymore. This has long been the uh, rewards-based trainer's choice. This is what I learned early on, is you just allow behaviors that you don't like to extinguish, meanwhile reinforcing behaviors that you do like. And I have come to see this as rarely the kinder option than the punishment route, as long as our punishment that we choose is within a Lima framework but I'm getting ahead of myself again, because I'm going to explain what that looks like. And first I want you to understand why I don't think extinction is the best choice most of the time. Think about a previously established behavior for yourself, and then think about what it feels like when that behavior does not work. That is a yucky feeling, that's not a good feeling. Um, and you are likely to spend a long amount of time still trying the behavior that used to work and that long amount of time that you're engaging in that behavior to try to make it work for you is a sucky time that is not a fun time for anybody and you were the longer the reinforcement history is for that behavior, the longer that time is going to go on because of something called the matching law. So that just means that the number of times something was reinforced matches the number of times it will be tried again. So if we think of maybe the human problematic behavior of speeding in a car, I have options here right now. Within our current judicial system in the United States, there is no positive reinforcement for driving your car appropriately. Uh, maybe a little bit from insurance companies. There are some insurance companies that are trying some some things that might look like positive reinforcement. But, but as far as the judicial system is concerned, you are punished for speeding intermittently, which is about the least effective way that we could go about anything, which is exactly why all of us still speed when we're behind the wheel. If I simply put a device in your car that made it so your car could not go past the speed limit ever, so your car was a smart car, it knows, what the given speed limit is wherever you are. And you it simply will not exceed that speed. I have now done a couple of things. The first thing I've done is manipulate the environment to make access to the problem behavior impossible. But the other thing I've done is cut off reinforcement for your previous behavior. So you're gonna hit that gas pedal and you're gonna look at that dial and you're gonna see that it's not going faster. And you're gonna experience frustration. And if you don't know that I've done this to your car, or for a long time, you are gonna wonder why your car doesn't work. And you're gonna to continue to try to make it speed. And that's gonna be frustrating and annoying for you. Meanwhile, I could certainly apply, you know, let's say I've made the car really smart, and the car actually just adds money to your bank account, you know, per minute that you are following the speeding rules and I've cut off access to the problem behavior which is speeding but you're seeing that money go into the bank each time you stay under that speed limit so let's say you go from a 45 down to a 30 you're now going to consciously remove your foot from that gas pedal even though your car's going to slow down on its own because you see that money start to fill in there's like a little dial on your dashboard I've created this fancy smart car hey Tesla hit me up um And you're watching this happen, and so you're going to choose that right behavior because of that positive reinforcement that's there. However, when you want to speed, when the reinforcement for speeding, like you're late, is more attractive than that penny that goes through every minute that you are um, staying under the speed limit, you are still going to try speeding, and you're still not going to get access to it, and that's not going to feel good. So now I could apply a punishment, a punisher. Um, I could, negative punishment, I could remove money from that bank, right? So let's say the extinction um, device is no longer on the vehicle. Now I'm just trying to teach you with reinforcement and punishment. I'm going to remove money from your account when you speed. And I'm going to put money back in when you're not speeding. This may or may not work, right? It depends on how much money you need. It depends on how... Quickly, you need to get somewhere. Maybe if you get somewhere on time, you're going to make more money than the car ever would. Right? So now you're understanding really just how complicated all of this is when there are reinforcers at play that you maybe have less control over. So an extinction burst that is really common or an extinction trial that's really common uh, for people to experience in real life, in the human experience, is that if you've ever waved your hands under a faucet in a restroom, and if you have listened to the podcast for any length of time, you've already heard me use this analogy, but it is really one of my favorites. If you wave your hands under an automatic faucet and no water comes out, that is... An extinction trial because a previously reinforced behavior, which is waving your hands under the faucet, is no longer being reinforced. And the reinforcement in this scenario is water comes out. That, isn't that just the worst moment? You're so frustrated that you wave your hands faster and you may give up and go over to the other faucet. So you're experiencing an extinction trial in that moment. You are not experiencing negative punishment because the water isn't there. Nothing's being taken away from you. Uh, A negative punishment trial would be that you wave your hands under the faucet and the faucet disappears. And then maybe a positive punishment trial would be hot oil comes out of the faucet instead of water. So something you did not expect that was aversive that makes you not do that anymore um you also did not expect the faucet to disappear and that was aversive and so you do not do that anymore but just having the previously reinforced uh behavior not be reinforced is extinction and not punishment does that make sense so it's so if i wave my hands under the faucet and no water comes out i have been put into an extinction trial if i wave my hands under the faucet and the faucet disappears I'm experiencing negative punishment if my waving behavior stops, which I think I would wager that it would because there's no more faucet for you to wave your hands under. If I wave my hands under the faucet and hot oil comes out, that's a positive punishment trial if I stop, again, if I stop waving my hands because we're defining punishment by its function, not by the event. And I'm just going to guess that you wouldn't do that twice because ouch. However, If I really wanted to punish, or let's say I really wanted to alter your hand washing behavior, let's say I wanted you to use hand sanitizer on your way out of the restroom instead of washing your hands. I'm going to put the hand sanitizer thing available. It's going to be right there. And now I have these options. Let's say I am magical and I can do all of these things. I can make hot oil come out, I can make it disappear, or I can just make the water not come out. But I also have an option of making whatever I want come out of the faucet. Maybe I don't want to hurt you with the hot oil. So now I'm going to make milk come out of the faucet. And again, if you are a CogDog Radio fan, you have probably heard me say uh, be the milk in this scenario. And the reason it's be the milk is when we as rewards-based trainers choose a punishment route because we think it is kinder than extinction... It cannot be that hot oil. That's not kinder because why? Because that hurts. Now, might my learner choose the hot oil over the extinction? Yeah, depending on my learner, they might. But I would prefer to be very clear and have this work in one, in one trial, in one scenario, if, if possible. And I'd also like you to not be hurt or afraid. And if I simply make the water stop coming out, you're going to experience a lot of frustration and I'm going to see a lot of resurgence of the behavior of you trying to wash your hands because why? The matching law, so the number of times that that has actually worked for you, you will keep trying it. If I make the faucet disappear, uh, that could certainly work, but let's say there's a row of faucets, right? Aren't you just going to go to the next one? Um, And let's say this is an environment in which the faucets are going to reappear right? Let's say I can't make it disappear forever. So that's more real life for our dogs, right? We can't remove things all the time and just have those things be gone. That's environmental management. Environmental management would be there are no more sinks and faucets. There is only hand sanitizer. You only have one choice. That's environmental management. So I know this is getting (laughs) convoluted, but bear with me. Let's say instead I make milk come out of the faucet. You're going to go, oh, well, that, that's, that's broken. That didn't. I, that's not what I want. That's weird. Oh, there's hand sanitizer over here. You may try it a couple more times if milk keeps coming out or you may try the other faucets if milk comes out of those. You're going to give up on that pretty quickly and you're going to go use hand sanitizer and move on with your life. That's what I want a punishment procedure to look like for my dogs. I want them to know exactly what will be reinforced and I want their behavior to still have an effect on the environment, but I want the effect that it has to be not the one that they were after in the first place. So having zero effect on my environment is extremely frustrating, okay? That's that extinction issue again. But having the wrong effect on my environment is less frustrating because my behavior is still working. You've not taken my ability to affect my surroundings away from me. You've not taken my ability to affect my own circumstances away from me. Instead, you've simply changed what the previous behavior will buy me and so I change my behavior to get me an alternative or maybe to get me something different. Perhaps there's one sink you want me to use. You just make that the only one that produces water. Done, easy, now I'm using that sink religiously. There's, there's so many things I could say here because the other thing, well, let me recap. If we're gonna use a punishment procedure, I like it to be, something that the dog reads as, his behavior buying him, and I want it to be not the thing he was after in the first place. And I think in a lot of circumstances, this is kinder than extinction. Not all. But I think if we're using an extinction trial, we need to be very mindful of it. If you refer back to my conversation with Shade Whitesell about self-regulation, she trains self-regulation via extinction, and she's doing it on purpose with mindfulness, with awareness of what it's going to get her. So refer back to that if you haven't heard that episode yet. If I'm simply trying to alter your behavior... And it is a previously established behavior like the behavior's been reinforced for so long that i know these extinction trials are going to be painful for both of us i'm probably going to use a punishment choice and again let me repeat alongside a positive reinforcement, rewards-based behavior change protocol, the dog's needs are being met, and the environment is being managed as best as possible. And now I may also apply a punisher to demonstrate for the dog that their previously reinforced behavior pattern will no longer be reinforced. And rather than only that information, I show them exactly what that behavior will get them. So let's talk about some actual dog examples. And there's one additional little piece that I want you to kind of put a pin in as I talk about these protocols. And that is something, um, and that is using essentially a warning signal to the dog. So basically telling the dog, uh, punishment is coming. And then just like a clicker tells the dog, reinforcement is coming. Because the dog, because reinforcement tends to be something the dog is seeking, I follow up a clicker religiously with that reinforcement. But punishment is kind of the opposite. They would like to avoid that thing. And so the warning tone can become an opportunity for the animal to opt out of the punishment by choosing a different behavior. And then guess what I get to do with that different behavior? Reinforce it. Okay, so that's also something that I think is wise to be using. Um, My textbook from Ken Ramirez says that this is called an S-delta, so um, a delta stimulus. So a few dog examples. One of my favorites is that uh, my dog, Iggy, very persistent. If we're going to label her, she is pushy, persistent, resilient, um, an incredible dog that is, is difficult to argue with. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Ever since she was young, she wants to bark at me and scream at me to get me to make her meals go faster, make her meal prep go faster so that she can get her food. And I've tried a variety of things. I did try... A negative punishment route early on which is that I stopped making the food and left the counter so early on I just throw the food back down on the counter and walk out of the house and that had some good effect early on but it, it was not it was not long-lasting enough so um, it, it was not long-term effective finally Fast forward several years of me being screamed at. So again, this has been reinforced for a long time. And I I would often just put her in another room, you know, kind of make her meal secretly while she was doing something else. This is almost embarrassing, y'all. But mostly she just runs my life, is my queen. And I would just say, I'm going as fast as I can, your majesty, right? So then finally I had this idea. Of what about the milk? I've been telling people be the milk. How do I be the milk in this situation? How do I apply a punisher and let me? And I've tried. I tried um, a differential reinforcement procedure. I tried to have her do something else as well. Turns out she's very good at screaming at me from a downstay on a station across the room. So that was less effective as well. How do I be the milk in this scenario? Is what I started to ask myself and. I arrived at I would just pet her so I would stop making her food turn to her and stroke her very genuinely and tell her how beautiful she is and um, she's not a bite risk so it's important before you try this you know full warning there are dogs that would bite you over this so be careful um, and I would give her the warning signal of oh you want pets in love And then I would just stroke her and pet her and kiss her face. Oh my God, she would be pissed. She would just back up and huff and and stomp her feet and be like, "This is not what I, ma'am. No, I am asking you for my dinner. This is not appropriate." And she's a sweet dog. She's, you know, I love on her all the time. One of my favorite things about her is like in the early morning, she'll like snuggle up all cute and press her forehead into me and I'll stroke her and like, she's a sweet dog. In this scenario, though, petting is the milk. Petting is a hundred thousand percent not what she is asking for. It does not hurt. It is not scary. It is not what she asked for. To this day, she starts to bark at me. I can simply turn to hit her and say, oh, you want pets? And she deliberately clamps her jaw, backs up, and is quiet and allows me to make her meal. I have also used a procedure, um, a punishment procedure for barking in a crate. And I h- hesitated to add this example here because I am very passionate about what I'm going to call happy crating. Okay. My protocol for happy crating is all about antecedent arrangement. It's all about setting the dog up for success. I do not advocate allowing dogs to experience extinction trials while while Distress barking because it's then it's not even, in my opinion, an extinction trial, it is simply allowing the dog to arrive at learned helplessness. They are begging for help, and you allow them to arrive at learned helplessness, and then you let them out. So, that's probably a conversation for another day. I'm talking specifically about I am barking at you from the crate because I don't want to be in here. Okay, so. I have gone through happy creating protocols. This dog is not distressed. I have met this dog's needs. He is well exercised. Uh, his training needs are met. He has a good life. His enrichment needs are met. I have managed to try to make sure this isn't happening all the time. To try to make sure this isn't this really unfair scenario of like, the dog is created ringside at agility class and I'm walking the course and I have not taught this dog how to wait ringside while I walk a course, which, by the way, I would do with a station and not a crate because it will keep you honest about what they're capable of doing. I have still arrived at a dog that sometimes is like, I do not want to be in here, right? Because sometimes they don't, and sometimes because of household management, they have to be. So please do not take this protocol and apply it to a dog that you have not already taught to settle in a crate and apply it to a dog that has not demonstrated capability of settling in the crate most of the time. But the way that you can be the milk here is you can cover the crate. Do a lot of dogs still bark from a covered crate? Yeah, they do. That's fine. You wait for them to be quiet and then you do not let them out. You uncover it. So you're basically saying to them, this is your circumstance. You are in here. This is going to be where you are for the next given amount of time. If you would like to be able to see out, you also have to be quiet. And the caveat must be that you have not reinforced barking in the crate, right? So that you don't let them out when they're screaming. That's something that is part of happy crating as well. So that's very important. So covering the crate is the milk. Dog doesn't want out, but the dog has caused you to do something. You get up, you cover the crate. It is better than removing yourself walking out of the room. Because they know you're still there when you cover it. Um, it is, in my opinion, kinder than using some kind of severe punisher like a citronella collar or anything like that. It is still a punishment procedure, though, and I'm going to call it a positive punishment procedure. I think it could be argued that you remove sight, you remove access to the room visually. Um, but I'm going to say that you also apply the cover. So, (laughs) you decide. That's kind of the trouble with the quadrants, is they're always kind of a bunch of them happening all the time. So you need to use that delta signal. So you need to say, I'm covering you. You know, or I would just say quiet. Dog doesn't quiet, I get up, cover the crate. When the dog is quiet, I uncover him, but I don't let him out. I let him out when he settles and he's quiet, and I'm ready to let him out. This has been effective for a few different clients of mine. Um, and I have used it a little bit in my puppy, Rhea, as well. She's rarely crated in her life right now, but I have used it a little bit for her. Most of the situations where she struggles with crating are situations that I have not done the groundwork yet, and so it is not fair for me to do this. So those are just a couple of examples of where I may apply a Punisher and how I would use them. Understand, again, Punishment is defined by its function. It is not defined by the event. Okay, I could slap the dog for barking at me, but if she doesn't stop barking, punishment didn't happen. I was just a jerk. Right? Uh, I could rattle the crate. I've Advice that I was given a long time ago is pick up that crate and shake it to get that puppy to shut up. The puppy continues to scream. Punishment didn't occur. You just scared them. You were just, again, a jerk. So, I really hope this clears some stuff up. I am going to guess there are going to be questions about this. That is a great place for Patreon. We may even do a live over there to talk it out if there are a lot of questions. And I really appreciate your open mind here. As always. All right, a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Kyra who writes, favorite relationship building exercises and what I will say Kyra is that first of all I'm not 100% sure what that means so I'm gonna assume that what you're after is things to enhance probably the communication between you and your dog um if not just kind of the feelings of joy and happiness that you might have together so for me relationship building is all about doing anything that the dog and I enjoy as a team so not necessarily me just providing things for my dog that they like although I enjoy doing that as well but something that we like to do together. So number one is probably gonna be training and training for sports is one way that I really believe that I enhance my relationship with my dogs. But also going on long walks together, my dogs are very much on the walk with me. They're not so much on the walk by themselves. And that's something that I intentionally cultivate from the beginning. And so I would say that number one is training with kind of the subtext of sport training number two long walks together and then i also enjoy traveling with my dogs um, as well although that's definitely not for everyone next one is from Mackenzie, who writes My dogs and I play in agility and have often heard from others that dogs with toy drive are best slash most desirable for agility, and it got me thinking. My current dog loves food and loves toys at home, and I have no expectation of turning him into a primarily toy-driven dog, but I do want to explore using toys more, even if it is just at home or in class. What are some of your favorite games exercises to build toy drive? My boy has a solid toy release, but likes to do a victory lap with his toy before coming back to me when we play. He gets to win games of tug the majority of the time. So Mackenzie, you've asked several questions. I think I'm going to break it down um, and address kind of the first thing you've said. Because this wasn't a question, but you made a statement that um, I don't think is necessarily your statement, but has kind of been taught to you that I disagree with. So the the that statement is that dogs with toy drive are better than dogs that don't have toy drive um, for agility. That is definitely a common cultural misconception in the sport. They really don't need to like toys to be good at agility. And there are plenty of dogs that won't work for toys that are great at agility. I actually think that, use of food reinforcers is more valuable and if I had to pick between the two I would pick a very foodie dog over a dog that's obsessed with a toy because the food is easier for me to use. So if your dog loves toys at home and it's an efficient training tool for you at home then go ahead and use it there. But I am not a trainer that works really hard to build a drive that is not there. A lot of dogs that will play toys at home but won't play toys elsewhere are just not comfortable enough elsewhere to do so, and I would increase their comfort other ways and maybe ask them if they want to play, but to me it wouldn't be about building that drive to play. Um, And then you mentioned that your dog has a good release, but he likes to do a victory lap. So I would say take a very hard look at the way that you are playing. Because if you change your play and he doesn't do the victory lap or the victory lap is shorter then he's maybe telling you how he wants to play. So I would let him win often, like you're saying that you do, and the victory lap is information. It could be information about the play, it could be information about the what you were just training. I wouldn't necessarily think of that as a training problem. So Mackenzie, hopefully that was helpful to you. Brittany writes, How do you use food scatters when you have a food aggressive dog in the mix? My puppy jumps up and down and will sometimes bite at the baby gate setup I have around the front door. And if it's just her, I can use a food scatter on the ground. Uh, which is on a tile floor, and walk through the gate without her getting worked up. If all my dogs are standing there, I don't feel like I can because one is food aggressive and will snap at the other dogs. Is it even possible to use scatters in this situation? So Brittany, the biggest issue with your situation is that it's tile floor. Um, I also do not throw a bunch of food on hard floor if all of my dogs are there because they could fight. And the same group of dogs, I will throw food in the grass. Why? Because scenting is incompatible with aggression. So if they're scenting for the food through the grass, they're less likely to have an aggressive outburst than if it is on hard floor. So I would say that you're in a training situation, you have to simply train through that behavior rather than manage it with food scatters because food scatters are not a viable management option for you in that particular situation. And the last one for today comes from Jenny who writes, I love hiking with my lab Carrie and we go on at least three hikes or decompression walks every week. Good good for you, Jenny. Uh, While we're hiking, we use pullover and it works so well. I also play some training games, tossing food for him to catch, running and hiding behind trees for him to find me, playing a game to practice attention where I toss food away and then use a noise to get his attention back to me and then reward the behavior, etc. These games can take up a decent part of our two to three hour hikes and while Carrie seems to enjoy them, I'm worried that they are taking away from the decompression aspect and trading it in for training games. Our training time. Getting some training done on decompression walks is definitely efficient, but I really want to make sure he gets the best experience possible. What's your advice? So Jenny, I tend not to do a ton of training on my walks, although I do some. So I do kind of as much training as needs to be done to make sure that my dogs still care about me and think I'm relevant on the walk and will also comply with the things that I need them to do when they're on the walk. So, I would say that if it's working, if your decompression walks are having the right kind of effect on carry behaviorally and all the training is working out for you, then it's working. So it's essentially a, if it's not broken, don't fix it sort of situation. Thanks everybody. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a CogDogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dogs. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash CogDogRadio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.